0: Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast for all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host. I wanted to say thank you for your patience with this brief break in the Febrile episodes recently. I took the opportunity to take some time away, and since Febrile is a very small operation that came along with a short hiatus from new releases. I'm back though, and super happy to say that Febrile is hard at work. We want to keep providing a great platform for learning about ID. I'm also working on getting the console notes and infographics up to date, and I know we're a little bit behind on that. But in the meantime, I hope you are excited for another series. We have our second edition of Curious Congenital Conundrums. If you missed the prior series, you can go back and check out episodes 36, 37, 39, 41 and 43. We talked a bit about the framework of using scorched over torch uh, and had four cases discussing CMV, syphilis, toxoplasma, and HSV in the congenital or neonatal setting as well as pregnancy. So this second edition is going to again feature four episodes or cases. They're going to be released weekly over the next four weeks in September and October. All right, let's get started. So in this episode, we are joined by our co-host. My name's Amadine Duray. Dr. Amadine Duray is a National Institute for Health and Care Research Academic Clinical Fellow in Pediatric Infectious Diseases working at Imperial College in London. Next, I'll introduce our discussant today. And
1: I'm Liz Whittaker.
0: Dr. Liz Whitaker is a senior clinical lecturer in Pediatric Infectious Diseases and Immunology. She divides her time between Imperial College London and the Department of Pediatric Infectious Diseases and Immunology at St. Mary's Hospital London, where she is a consultant. Well, as everyone's favorite cultured podcast on February, we like to ask about a little piece of culture. Is something non-medical that brings you happiness or joy? Um, Amity, maybe I'll start with you first.
2: Yeah, I enjoy open water swimming, and the summer in London is a good time to do that. So I've been going to the Hampstead Ponds loads, um, and just enjoying the sunshine.
1: That's so bizarre because I was going to say um we moved out to Berkshire, and I live um, by the Thames, and I and I swim in the Thames doing open water swimming in the mornings. I did my first five k swim on Sunday because I'm training for a ridiculous swimming marathon. But I was thinking it's not really culture. <laughs> Well, there <laughs> we go. That's okay. That's so okay. Weird, Amadine, I didn't know you did open water swimming as well. But it's basically, it's so beautiful in the Thames. You swim along and your head comes up. You're like, oh, there's a heron. And look, that was a <laughs> kingfisher. And oh, look at those water lilies. It's really delightful. So it's uh, very good for mind clearing. Oh.
0: I love it. Yeah, people bring all sorts of, sometimes it's things like books and movies, but sometimes it's just like hobbies or activities that they like to do. And I I love it. I love the whole range. Well, Amandine, I'll throw it over to you to tell us about the case. Of course.
2: So Liz, it's a busy Friday afternoon when you're called by your NICU colleague. Your colleague is concerned about an 18-day-old baby boy born at 30 weeks and 6 days of gestation who was doing well until yesterday when he started to develop feeding intolerance, respiratory distress, and temperature instability. Upon gathering more history, you ascertained that the baby was born prematurely to a 26-year-old gravida 2 para 1 mother by spontaneous vaginal delivery after an antipartum hemorrhage with subsequent premature labor. The Apgar scores at birth were 6 at 1 minute and 7 at 5 minutes. The birth weight measured 1.73 kilos. The baby was intubated and given surfactant at birth due to respiratory distress and subsequently extubated onto CPAP after approximately 20 minutes. The maternal history was positive for acute traumatic fever and previous pleural effusions of unknown etiology. The mother was born in Eastern Europe, but moved to the United Kingdom approximately two years before delivery. She had good prenatal care with normal blood work and antenatal ultrasounds. The NICU team also tells you that five days ago, the mother, while visiting the baby in the NICU, was noted to look unwell and was told to go home. She has subsequently deteriorated, and the team have just been informed that she's been admitted to ITU with severe pneumonia. Liz, what further information would you gather from the NICU team that may help you in both formulating a differential diagnosis and managing the baby?
1: Mm. Well, there's lots of really fascinating snippets that you threw in there for me, which I'll maybe come back to later. But I think the most important thing is this is a, a vulnerable preterm. And the differential is probably quite broad because babies of this age um, may be presenting with a congenital problem or um, a genetic problem, or they may be presenting with an infection. But because this is a febrile podcast, I'm going to focus on the infections and assume my neonatal colleagues can do their own echoes and metabolic workup. Um, And so I think the most important thing to consider is whether this baby has a typical pathogen for neonatal sepsis and importantly whether there's a risk of meningitis and whether they're stable enough to have the investigations we'd like to do for that um, and that we'd want to start start some broad spectrum antimicrobials quite urgently um, and I think from, from our perspective locally here in London um, and bearing in mind this mum is from Eastern Europe we'd want to know exactly where she was from to think about whether our empiric first-line antibiotics are going to cover any resistant organisms that she might be colonized with And so it would be really good to know uh, what information we have about mum's colonization and baby's colonization from admission swabs or weekly swabs on the NICU um, and from maternal swabs in her prenatal care. Um, And then, of course, we need to think, given that you told me that the mum is unwell, is about infections that would make an adult sick and a neonate. Um, And that's where it just gets complicated quite quickly so we need to know more about mum so you said Eastern Europe that's a big place Uh, do we know where she came from what healthcare she had there what screening she had before coming into this country and where does she live so she may well have quite constrained circumstances and may live in a multi-occupancy home uh, which is quite crowded which would then lead to other infectious risks so TB and things has mum been vaccinated um, either as a child or more recently Um, and um, has anybody in her home been unwell in any other way could this actually be something that's in the environment at home that she's passed on and then I guess really importantly is she breastfeeding I don't think you mentioned that which would then just lead to other modes of transmission from mum in fact there's just a lot more information that we need Amadine I'm sorry that was just inadequate go ask all the questions (laughs) Perfect. So you gather more
2: background history from the NICU team, and they tell you that the father and three year old sibling are both well. The family had traveled to the UK from Moldova two years ago to reunite with family. They're not sure if they had any screening before they immigrated, but the father does remember getting a small injection in his forearm many years ago that turned a bit red. He also remembers having had a normal chest x ray and being prescribed four months of medicines, but only taking one month before he stopped because the medications made his urine turn orange. As far as he knows, the mother did not have any testing and the pleural effusions found on her chest x-ray were thought to be due to resolving pneumonia about two months ago, but that she continued to have an intermittent cough. She also had abdominal and pelvic pain and intermittent loose tools, but she didn't think too much of it as she thought it was pregnancy related. The family live in a two-bedroom apartment and they have no pets or animal contacts, but they do occasionally see mice. With regards to the baby stay in NICU, so far the baby has had three episodes of feeding intolerance and two episodes of abdominal distension, both resolved with holding feeds for three days and IV antibiotics. With these episodes, blood cultures were done and were repeatedly negative. A lumbar puncture was completed with the initial episode and it showed a total cell count of four, normal protein and normal glucose with no bacterial growth. The NICU team have not yet been able to win the baby of CPAP. Two chest x-rays were done in the first two weeks of life and they were normal. However, the most recent chest x-ray demonstrated bilateral haziness and right upper lobe collapse. The full blood count showed a white cell count of 16 with a neutrophil count of 8.7 and a lymphocyte count of 6.9, the CRP was 33. Unfortunately, the NICU team do not have much more information about the mother's current status in ITU. And thus, to get a better picture, they provide you with the adult ITU contact information Liz, Based on their history, which disease process are you most concerned about? And what specific investigations would you inquire about when discussing
1: the case with the adult ITU team? Okay. This is really interesting. And I have to congratulate whoever took the history on getting such a comprehensive and detailed uh, amount of information, which really points us in one direction. But the most important thing in medicine is to maintain a broad differential, particularly with a vulnerable baby. So just the interesting points are um, that there's what sounds like dad's had TB infection, which was partially treated. So he didn't take a full course of antibiotics for a presumed positive tuberculin skin test with a normal chest x-ray because he was worried about the side effects. So we can come back to the education required when we start people on treatment another time. And um, and also this really interesting history where Mum actually, it sounds like, has been unwell for quite a few months. And whenever you have a kind of insidious onset of of conditions, I always think about tuberculosis. And I think it comes back to one of my bugbears generally, which is that pregnant women get really poor assessment because it's assumed that you'll be unwell in pregnancy and all symptoms are attributed to being pregnant. Whereas actually many pregnant women are healthy and they should be listened to and get appropriate assessment and advice when they report unusual symptoms. And then going back to the baby, what you've described to me is this infant's actually not been quite right for a little while, that they've had some minor feeding intolerances and alarmingly, they now appear to have a respiratory focus with a collapse and haziness. Um, uh, so, whilst keeping in mind the differentials, so we still need to worry about bacterial sepsis. So, mum and baby are unwell, so we might think about things about listeria. In the current climate, I might think about flu, maybe group A strep. There's a lot of it around. Although mum is a little bit, it's a little bit past her delivery for purpura sepsis, and um, she could have uh, um, another bacterial uh, process or like a gram negative or group B strep in the baby. Um, I guess with the recurrent pleural effusions, we always need to think about inflammatory processes. Could this be an autoimmune condition and that this baby has some autoantibodies on board which are contributing to the ill health? So we might want to measure those. And then are there atypical infections? I mentioned TB. um, I guess, have they been using any humidifiers in the home or any other kind of um, risk factors for Legionella? And that would be something that the baby would be particularly susceptible to. I think it would be a little bit unusual for mum to end up with a chlamydia pneumonia, but that is something we worry about in neonates. And then um, I guess this baby is vulnerable and they've had a couple of courses of antibiotics. So taking the mum and the baby separately, we just need to remember things like candida. And then the other thing that I always think about, because I'm slightly biased, is CMV and it's one of my research interests. So I think there's quite a lot of investigations that we need to do on the mum and the baby Um, And in particular, it would be quite nice to get a bit more information on what's happening to mum, because I think if she had a flu and had a flu decompensation, she could be quite well. but they ought to have had a rapid flu test back on her. She might have had a flu vaccine we could ask about as well, Um, uh, but also whether she's getting better with conventional treatment or whether she's struggling on those, which would again fit with a kind of TB diagnosis. Mm
2: So the ITU team tell you on the phone that mom developed a fever, worsening abdominal pain, and malaise about eight days prior to her admission. She was initially treated with antibiotics for atypical pneumonia, but she continued to deteriorate. Her chest X-ray on admission to ITU showed small, diffuse bilateral nodules concerning familiar TB. A CT chest showed numerous 1 to 3 millimeter nodules bilaterally affecting all lung fields with diffuse parenchymal lung disease, and no evidence of pulmonary embolism. An abdominal CT showed numerous peritoneal lymph nodes, inflammation of the allium, and stranding and inflammation surrounding the ovaries and fallopian tubes. The ITU team suspects disseminated TB. The mother is now intubated and ventilated, and a bronchoscopy is planned for bacterial, fungal, and mycobacterial cultures. Liz, knowing that the most suspecting diagnosis is disseminated TB, how does this change your management of the newborn?
1: Thanks, and I'm going to be fired by my colleagues because I didn't mention HIV earlier, although I have to confess it was written down on my little pad here. Um, but I did mention <laughs> that the mum had normal antenatal care, but I would want to just make sure in the light of everything that's going on, that both the mum and the baby are not HIV infected, just given mum has disseminated disease. And um, that can happen anyway, because pregnancy, you have a change in your immune responses and TH2, TH1 shifts, which can make you more vulnerable to progressing to severe disease at that time anyway. So that could be it by itself, but particularly coming from um, Moldova, in Europe, HIV and, and hepatitis really need to be screened for in both the mum and the baby. So, we are thinking that this the risk here is that this infant has um, a, just has a TB, which it's inherited perinatally. Um, and people talk about congenital TB, and we try and use the terminology perinatal TB because actually it's quite difficult to know when transmission might have occurred. Given this mum has disseminated disease, it's reasonable to consider there may, might have been hematogenous spread, and it would be very good to go back to the placenta to look at that. And the diagnostic criteria used to include involvement of the liver as well as involvement of finding TB in other places, including the lungs, but looking for dissemination in the baby. I think actually it's slightly academic. Um, What we need to ascertain is if there's TB there, how far advanced it is, um, and whether we can get treatment going on the infant as quickly as possible, which has its own challenges in terms of prepar- preparations of the drug, formulations of the drug, for example. So for this baby, um, we need to uh, get the right samples, so we can do gastric aspirates, or if this baby is intubated, we can do ET secretions, or even um, a bronchoalveolar lavage. Um, and we need to ideally get three samples and send them off for both a TB-PCR, um, ideally a gene expert, so we can find out if there's any resistance. Again, a concern for a baby from Eastern Europe, um, uh, but also looking uh, to confirm the diagnosis. And we do um, culture as well, which would be the gold standard. It would be relatively unusual to get a smear positive result on an infant, but in this baby is very unwell, it might happen. Um, we would also want to do, we've mentioned a chest x-ray, we want to do an abdominal ultrasound scan and um, see if there is any liver involvement or any nodes in the tummy um, and whether the liver and spleen are enlarged or have any lesions within them. And then we'd probably do a cranial ultrasound scan while we were there. If the baby was stable, it would be ideal to do a lumbar puncture just to ascertain how disseminated any disease was um, at this point. And then we talk about doing immune tests, which. Aren't really licensed for TB disease diagnosis. They're more of an indication of an immune response to TB, but if they're positive, give a lot of additional beneficial information rather than being necessary for the diagnosis. So we do them because they can be helpful. If they're negative, it doesn't rule out the diagnosis. In the mum, she should have a tuberculin skin test and an interferon gamma release assay, whether that's a TB, L-spot or a quantiferon. And then she is intubated, so bronchoalveolar lavage samples should be possible um, and um, and any other samples. And again, if mum has ascites, for example, it might be possible to do a peritoneal uh, tap to get some fluid off there as well. Although to be honest, the um, pickup rate for TB is probably relatively low on that. Um, but this mum might well have genital TB. And as I said, going back to the placenta could be beneficial. And any sample you can get can be tested, uh, particularly using our gene experts. So don't shy away from getting all of them and sending all of them at the same time.
2: The testing and samples, as you suggest, are all collected. The neonatal gastric aspirate returns positive for mycobacterium tuberculosis complex. The abdominal ultrasound also demonstrates suspected primary hepatic lesions. The cranial ultrasound is normal and a repeat puncture shows a cell count of two and again normal protein and glucose. The acid-fast bacillus smears from the maternal bronchial alveolar larvage are also positive. Liz can, you dis- Liz, can you discuss your initial medical management of the baby and what kind of follow-up you would typically suggest?
1: Okay. Um, so we would normally um, start this baby on four drug uh, treatment. And the four drugs that we use as first-line therapy for TB are isoniazid, rifampicin, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. Um, And the, it's important to know that we don't have great PK. Uh, pharmacokinetic data for these drugs in preterm babies in particular but even in neonates Um, and so what we usually recommend is starting on kind of standard dosing and but doing therapeutic drug monitoring so that we can see whether we're getting levels in range and what might be quite important in this baby um, is whether or not they are tolerating feeds and therefore will tolerate an oral preparation Um, and so sometimes we need to give the drugs intravenously so in a particularly unwell infant we can then give intravenous isoniazid and rifampicin and consider alternative agents if there aren't IV preparations of the others, and that might include a uh, quinolone um, such as levofloxacin or moxifloxacin, um, and linezolid, which I know is is quite a toxic uh, antibiotic, but is extremely good um, at treating TB uh, to sterilize uh, initially. So it could be given for a short period whilst this baby, uh, whilst we ensured this baby was able to absorb oral treatment. Um, and uh, obviously, the most common side effects of TB treatment are liver irritation. So we need to keep a close eye on the ALT. And we know this baby already has um, liver um, lesions. And so that might put it at slightly higher risk. And again, I go back to the bloodborne viral screen. Really important to know what are the risk factors there are for transaminitis or um, a liver adverse event in this baby in terms of hepatitis B or C um, or even HIV. Um and I can talk about the UK, but I'm sure that local ten, wherever you are, there will be a laboratory that is able to do therapeutic drug monitoring and can apply some of the timing. So it's normally a pre and a one hour post dose for most of these drugs and, um, and, um, And we would routinely do liver function tests. If you did end up adding something like linezolid or moxifloxacin, then we do ECGs because they can cause QT prolongation or bone marrow suppression. Um, And there is a fabulous website called the TB Drug Monograph, which I'm happy to provide a link to, which gives you the guidance on all of these antibiotics and is just really easy to access and get information from. Never assume you know all the answers, always know where to look it up. Would be my uh, recommendation. Um, and this baby uh, doesn't currently fit any criteria for adjunctive therapy, which we sometimes use uh, for other forms of tuberculosis. So, the reasons we might give something like steroids would be if there was uh, CNS or brain involvement. And I'm very reassured that this baby had no cells on the LP um, and that the ultrasound was normal and it didn't sound like there were any clinical concerns in the way the baby was behaving. If there was a pericarditis, the evidence is a little bit in and out about whether you give steroids, but it would be certainly worth having a discussion with colleagues who are experts in the area. And then finally, if the baby had any big lymph nodes that were causing, for example, airway obstruction, then there would be an indication for the use of corticosteroids. Um, for this baby, I would be quite concerned, um, as I mentioned, because I'm from Eastern Europe about getting an early um, gene experts on either the mum or the baby samples to confirm there's no rifampicin mutation because there is a higher incidence of drug-resistant TB um, in some parts of Romania and Moldova um, and other parts of Eastern Europe. So you need to know your epidemiology of TB. And if you're not sure, there are lots of really great people who are happy to chat about TB for a long time that you can ask. Um, but a gene expert would hopefully give you a quick answer. But if the baby wasn't responding quickly and you had good therapeutic drug levels an early switch to a drug-resistant regimen might be considered.
2: The baby is successfully started on for drug therapy, but the NICU is reminded that the mother had spent the first 10 days in the unit with the baby at the bedside. They call you to ask you what kind of screening, if any, needs to be done on the other babies and on the staff.
1: It'll be defensive again here, a bit like HIV. I like to think I would have come up with that without them asking, but there you go. <laughs> um, so this is a big issue. There's quite a, there's a reasonable amount of literature on exposure in, within neonatal units, both from visitors, either that's a staff or a parent, but also from the baby in its own right. It would be extremely unlikely that this baby would be infectious. They don't have the toss of power um, but it depends on how they were ventilated and what suction, whether they had inline suction, whether they were an incubator. So we would always do a risk assessment based on the procedures, the aerosol generation procedures the baby had um, and what the results were on the baby's samples. Um, we know that this baby did have uh, MTB in their lungs and so it is a possible risk on its own. But in addition, we know that mums um, had quite significant disseminated disease, including a smear positive bowel. And so we have to assume that she was a risk. Um, so in this instance, uh, this baby should be moved to a, um, should definitely be in an incubator and moved ideally to an isolation room, ideally within a negative pressure cubicle if it's available. Um, The mum, when she is better, provided she's had at least two weeks of treatment, is probably safe to come and visit the baby on the unit. However, it would be sensible to have a precaution of her wearing um, a face mask. Um, And for the dad, it would be sensible for the dad and the sibling to have chest x-rays to rule out infectious TB disease before they were allowed to visit the unit as well. In terms of the, the babies, we would screen the babies and the staff. Um, and this, they would all have the tuberculin skin test and an interferon gamma release assay. Um, and we would probably do a chest X-ray in this instance as well because of the presumed infectious load. Um, and we are quite cautious with these babies and would often often chemoprophylaxis because of their vulnerability and risks and so we'd normally give them Ise Ise at, uh as at, uh, 10 to 15 milligrams per kilo uh, for six months um, and repeating their testing at the end the problem with the tuberculin skin test and interferon gamma release assay is they are immune tests that depend on the baby's ability to mount a cell mediated immune response and they're not they're not entirely reliable in, in young children. And so we wouldn't base our decision making about prophylaxis on the results, but more again, think about the results as information and knowing how far to search for evidence of disease in the infant. So if any of the babies were unwell, we would have to consider doing tests, including gastro and things, to look for evidence of disease in those babies, although that would be a very rapid progression. It has been described in very vulnerable patients. Um, and um, and the other question then is whether if they had negative tests at the end of that six months, of I is whether we'd offer a BCG. Um, and I think that is a case by case discussion to be had with the family and depending on your local policy. Uh, so in London, we probably would do it. But for example, in Wales, that might not be warranted because the exposure risk might be different. And that will obviously depend on where you live in the world.
2: So in this case, the mother and the baby both make gradual recovery. But could you discuss how the treatment would be different if the mother was found to have MDR-TB, for example, resistant to isoniazid and rifampicin?
1: Sure. I mean, I have been involved in cases like this and all I'm going to say is they're really complex. What you need to have is really good colleagues that you can sit down with and work through all of the things that are needed both from an infection prevention perspective as well as the medical management of the mother and the baby. And so we're very lucky in the UK to have the British Thoracic Society expert clinical expert advice service uh, where these cases are discussed by colleagues from across the country, including pharmacy, um, medicine and nursing. Um, and so um, multi-drug resistant TB is very difficult to treat uh, because the um, second-line antibiotics that we have available to us are not as good at sterilising and killing the mycobacteria Um, and in addition they often have more toxicities than the first line regimen so we have a very clear guidance from the world health organization and other bodies about how to construct a regimen including usually drugs such as bedaquiline um, linesolid that I mentioned earlier quinolone clofazamine, and cycloserine and again we don't have a lot of data about um, the the PK of these drugs in, in preterm infants, um, although we have used it in a number of cases, but we really only then have observational data. So the mum is relatively straightforward because adult information is there. Things that we might need to take into account for her is if she's breastfeeding. Um, we would normally recommend um, that breastfeeding would be challenging whilst on some of these drugs because they are secreted in the breast milk. And so we need to think carefully about which drugs we use and whether or not we'd allow mom or recommend that mum continue to breastfeed or to um, express breast milk for the baby. Um, the two best, newest drugs that we have are delaminate and midaquiline. Um, and we have very um, little evidence for the use of delaminate, in particular in small infants. So midaquiline would be our usual drug of choice. And and there is increasing evidence of their use in high endemic settings where there's a lot more MDR-TB. However, I think this baby might have a very low weight for using bedaclin without experience. And so we would have to make an expert opinion on this. The other thing is that normally the treatment for TB disease would be six months for pulmonary going up to 12 months for more complex disease, including TB meningitis or spinal bone disease and things like that. Whereas for a multi-drug resistant regimen, we would normally be looking at 18 to 24 months of treatments, which is where the toxicity toxicity tends to sack up, even if you don't have it at the very beginning. Um, and so, uh, again, that is quite an undertaking for this uh, baby and the mother um, and, and difficult to do. And then not to mention that even if we did... Know um, which antibiotics are safe to use, it's very unlikely there'd be a pediatric friendly formulation. So they normally come in tablets, uh, which then have to be divided and crushed and mixed with water and given they're very unpalatable. At least a baby is a bit easier. I tell you, getting them into a toddler is like winning the lottery. Um, So we really um, have heart sink moments when we hear about drug resistant disease um, in the context of small children. But also it has issues for the screening and the other babies in the unit because eyes and eyes, it is unlikely to be beneficial as a prophylactic agent. And we do not have good evidence for any of the second line agents in terms of preventative use. Um, there is a TB CHAMP trial, which is going on in South Africa, which is looking at the role of a quinolone um, uh, to be used with ethambutol for contacts of MDR-TB, but that is very experimental and investigational. And I think we'd have to have a discussion as a team and with the parents of the babies on the unit about the risk benefit of giving them a long-term quinolone without very robust evidence. And so that will be an extremely difficult scenario to deal with on a neonatal intensive care unit. Um, uh, But we would still need to screen. I think we then need to do very close follow-up with those babies. They would already be recommended to monitor their growth monthly, Um, And then in this case, we probably, well, maybe we'll see them a little bit more often, maybe for our benefit as much as the babies. Before
0: we wrap up this episode, I do want to make sure I leave a little bit of space to see if there are any other take home messages that you want to make sure that we either reinforce or add, or maybe you've had challenges in, in prior cases that you want to share some learning points that you took away
1: Sure. So, one of the things I think is really important is that preventative medicine is possible when it comes to things like this. Um, And this goes back to what I said about pregnant women getting a poor deal. Um, So, personally, one of the things I'd like to see is screening for TB in high risk women. Um, In pregnancy, they are an idea. They're coming to hospital. They have a blood test at 12 weeks anyway. It's a great opportunity to see who might be at risk of um, of TB infection and therefore giving them prophylaxis or treatment to prevent them developing TB disease. Um, Many women... Um, reasonably, don't like to take unnecessary treatments during their pregnancy. Um, and so the recommendation is we know these drugs are safe, but if if the woman doesn't feel it's something that she's happy to do, is to make sure that she has a follow-up appointment postpartum so that she can be re-offered the treatment, which might then protect her infants uh, later in life. Um, and in addition, she might not want to have a chest x-ray, and so we would do a chest x-ray postpartum as well. So just thinking about the screening opportunities for high-risk families. Um, the other thing that comes up a fair amount is that mum might have been diagnosed when she presented with her pleural effusion two months pre-delivery and started on treatment. And the question that we often get asked in that context is, what do we do about the baby? And um, So if the mum is diagnosed and is um, tre- treated appropriately on four drug regimen and is getting better, actually that baby possibly doesn't need any treatment. So if mum is non-infectious at delivery, then we would BCG vaccinate the baby and, and monitor the baby but wouldn't feel the need to do further investigations. If she delivered shortly after starting the treatment and so there was still some infectious exposure, again, we would assess the baby, make sure there was no evidence of disease and then give the baby isoniazid preventive therapy for six months um, because that could protect the baby from further exposure from the mum. And we don't normally try and separate the mum and baby but might encourage her if she was coughing to wear a face mask uh, to prevent over transmission. And the other thing to really remember is that this dad may also be a risk factor. So family screening, if you pick up a woman who's got a positive immune test, such as a skin test or an ICRA, is screening the rest of the family to make sure there are no other risks within the household for that vulnerable newborn when they're born. So there are lots of really great opportunities to try and prevent scenarios like this. Although this mom and baby that we've described have done well, the mortality rate from congenital and perinatal TB can still be quite high. And so preventing it is probably better than trying to manage it.
0: Yeah. And I I think all those points that you were highlighting about being able to use these drugs and these small young babies, it's so challenging. Like it already seems challenging when they're, you know, like you were saying, toddlers. Um, but when we get into this space where they're much younger and in the NICU, um, it can feel a bit, uh <laughs> impossible at times. Yeah. yeah, and one other sort of what if scenario that we thought we'd mention is let's say you have a baby who does not have symptoms at birth. They have screening that's negative for any indication that there's presence of perinatal TB, but the mom has confirmed T B disease. How should we think about that case?
1: Yeah. So so if the other scenario is that the mom is diagnosed postpartum and the baby is well and what do we do then so look in an absolute ideal world we would separate the mum and baby to prevent further exposure but that's not a very human thing to do and so from an infection prevention perspective we would just encourage mum to wear a mask when she's in close proximity with the baby and to sleep in a separate room Um, and then this baby having had a chest x-ray and an assessment if they were well would be started on isoniazid um, and, and antibiotic. And what I haven't mentioned previously is that we give uh, the mum and the baby pyridoxine or vitamin B6 to prevent the possible development of peripheral neuropathy when they're on eyes and eyes it, um uh, which is quite an important vitamin uh, to prevent that. It's very safe um, and can be given to them uh, whilst they're on it. Um, and then that baby should be monitored closely because they had quite a high risk exposure and we would normally see them in the clinic on a monthly basis, making sure they're growing normally and being ready to assess again if they develop any unusual symptoms and then at the six month point we do the immune tests and if they're negative would offer a bcg vaccine at that point
0: thank you so much to liz and amini for joining febrile today of course remember that this is part of our second edition of the curious congenital conundrums so we're going to have a couple more episodes coming out over the next three weeks don't forget to check out the website febralpodcast.com where you'll find the consult notes our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with febra Thanks for listening, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.